Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. I pray that you will gather with us in this moment as we uh, think about the Bible and the implications of the Bible in the life of the church and in our own individual lives. And I pray that you'll give uh, the teachers wisdom and those who are here to listen, ears to hear well. And we ask these things uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. This this is a one-off lesson today. And um, on, entitled the Reformation Scripture Principle. This, this is the year of the Reformation. We're talking a lot about that around the Advent. We'll continue to do so, I imagine, throughout the year, uh, this being the 500th anniversary of the time that Luther nailed up his 95 theses. And I, I didn't really know what I was going to do in this class for, um, I knew I was going to do it, but I didn't know the topic for a while. And then I, I sat in for the past three weeks on uh, Jason Wallace's class on Islam. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to that class or not, or were able to attend, but I heartily commend it to you. Um, it was very, very helpful. Jason, um, I don't think Jason's in here, but he, he teaches basically, oh, you are in here. Okay, what I was about to say, I take it all back. No, but uh, I, I thought you were going to Anyway, Jason teaches in the, the kind of the, the Western intellectual tradition at Sanford and, and uh, gave a lot of attention during the past three weeks to the Quran, which made me sort of think, well, you know, let me, let me think a little bit about how we might talk about the Bible, not necessarily in conversation with the Quran. That's beyond my pay grade. That's, that's Jason's deal. No, but primarily for us to have some categories to think about the Bible and what we understand the Bible to be. And that's a very important thing for us to process, because the Bible, it is something, and maybe these are the, the, uh, the two statements that might help drive our morning as we think through this. The Bible is something, and the Bible does something. Um, we, 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 we confess it to be something, and we understand and hope that it will do something. And those two particular facets of the Bible's identity um, will help sort of shape our, our time this morning. Now... Uh, back to the Reformation and the Reformation tradition. I, I have, for good or for ill, and I'm sure there's some ill in this, but I, I have swallowed um, or, or drank pretty deeply at the Ref Reformation well. Uh, I think in Reformed ways. Um, I'm, I'm shaped very much by the theology, uh, of course, of the Anglican tradition that sort of finds its voice in Cramer, but Really, I'm, I'm very, very shaped by John, John Calvin. I mean, he, he um, continues to be a lifelong friend of mine, although I'm kind of glad that I didn't know him personally. I think he would not have been a really uh, chummy guy. I always thought it would be much more fun to drink beer with Luther than, than um, Calvin. Calvin was a kind of, um, if, if one does such things. Uh, anyway, but I'm, I'm very shaped by, by, by Calvin. Um, uh, and, and I should say this, you know, there, there'll be a lot of talk about the Reformation and the important, I guess, social, sociological, geopolitical ramifications of the Reformation. These are fascinating topics. Um, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is central to Reformation dynamics. Um, what does it mean uh, to be in the church? What is, it, what, what is the church? Um, when people gather together, how do we know that church is happening uh, th these are questions that were very much in the air of the, re of the re period of the Reformation in the, in the 16th century and onward in their, their heirs. But I think would, one would be hard-pressed to think of a more important matter in the 17th century than 
uh, the Bible. Um, understanding the Bible, the Bible's role in the life of the church, the Bible's authority. Um, and this is a, and again, that you, you think, well, of course, that was an important question. All Christians through the history of the church believe in the importance and the authority of the Bible. And that is certainly true, I guess, to a greater or lesser extent. But that is a true statement. The Bible's always been central to Christian faith. But how does the Bible work? How does the Bible get unleashed? in the life of the church? What does it mean for the scriptures to be authoritative? And where can the church get it wrong? Can the church get it wrong? Um, I, I spent some time a few years ago uh, working through, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess this, the first three chapters of a very good book. I just, I just lost steam. Um, but Ephraim Radner, who I think is probably one of the better Anglican theologians that's living today, if, if not at the top of the heap, um, Radner wrote a book entitled A Brutal Unity, um, thinking about the unity of the church, what does it mean for the church uh, to suffer in time, and what does it mean for the church to be sinful, because this is a rather thick um, and complicated debate, I think, between a Protestant view of the church and, let's say, a Roman Catholic view of the church that sees the church as essentially perfect, but its members can be not so perfect. And this is where Radner comes in with what I would consider to be a Lutheran view uh, of salvation and applies it to his doctrine of the church. What does that look like? Well, we see this, it's on our coffee cups around here, right? Simul eustus et peccator. I think it's the only Latin phrase that we bandy around about here. Um, at the same time, just, and at the same time, a sinner that's constitutive of your identity as a believer. That's central, I think, to Reformation thought as well. You are fully justified and you are fully a sinner both at the same time in this particular moment in time. That's true. Uh, Radner takes that and applies it to the church. Um, the church is fully righteous and fully sinful at the same time. Which means, and let's maybe put this more on the sidewalk which means that the church is, is both transformable and deformable. Now, I want you to think about that. The church is transformable. That gives us great hope. And the church is also deformable. It can get off the tracks. And this, I think, the getting off the tracks part was central to Reformation wrestling and thinking through the implications of the Bible because how do we get back on track? If we are transformable and deformable, how does deformation happen and how does transformation happen? And I think that the best of the magisterial reformers with really a unified choral voice together would say, well, the way that we get off the track is by not hearing the Bible well and the way in which we get back on track is by hearing the Bible well. So, uh, and we're going to get to the, I didn't mean to talk about this yet, but so I don't bury the lead. The issue is one of authority, is it not? And where does authority reside? And for the reformers, the authority resides primarily and in a norming way in the Bible itself. That, that's the slogan. I mean, there's a t-shirt that you're going to buy on the streets of Geneva um, or Wittenberg. I don't know if they did that back then. They didn't. Um, uh, but if you're going to buy a T-shirt, it would, it would, it, the Sola Scriptura would be a, a very happy slogan, the Scriptures alone. Now, we have to unpack that a little bit. 
Um, because I, you know, I kind of grew up in a world uh, that was very suspicious of churchly tradition. Now, the tradition itself is kind of a bad thing. Um, I, no creed but Jesus. And I, have you heard this language before? Now, there, there, there are Christian movements, Campbellite, Stones, you might think of like the Church of Christ. There, there are Christian denominations that their identity as a denomination is based in their standing against church tradition in favor of the Bible alone, right? That, that's not, as I understand it, a Reformation view of sola scriptura. Maybe if we, again, sorry to toss the Latin around, but if we toss a Latin phrase to this, that view is probably nuda scriptura. Now, the scripture alone, not in conversation with anything else except for me and my particular interpretive mind. That's that view of the Bible. That's not a Reformation view. The Reformers had a very high view of tradition. Matter of fact, if you kind of get into the literature, you might be surprised to find out how important it was for the Reformers to have the, pro the, the, the early church fathers on their side. In other words, we want to read the Bible well, but we really want to hear Augustine well too. We really want to make sure we've got Cyril of Alexandria down. Now, I was on the phone, I was doing a lecture this past semester in an Anglican class at Beeson on Thomas Cranmer. Um, you can tell that they had to get to the bottom of the bare barrel, and that's not my field. So I was like, well, I guess I better study for that. Um, and I began to read some more in this and ended up in a very long phone conversation with a friend of the Advents, Ashley Knoll. Many of you know Ashley. Ashley was, I could, I could hear the, he was on the streets in Berlin. We were talking on the phone and, and uh, you know, Ashley has stumbled across some fascinating documents. Basically, um, Cranmer's marginal notes on the Eucharist um, as he's wrestling with Cyril of Alexandria. Now, that might, you say, well, who, who cares, Janelette? Well, the, the, the simple point I want to make is, Here's Thomas Cranmer wrestling with an understanding of the Eucharist, what's happening in the Eucharistic moment, and it's really important for Cranmer that he's getting Cyril right on that. that that's important for him. So, this is, so sola scriptura does not mean we kick the church's tradition out. It's a recognition of the proper ordering of Scripture to tradition. Scripture and tradition are not on parallel tracks of authority, but tradition can get off. Maybe here's a metaphor that might help, and I'm, I'm stealing this from John Webster. How one might think about the relationship between Scripture and tradition in this way. Scripture is the speaking voice of God in the life of the church, and tradition is the hearing ear. We would do well to listen to that hearing ear, but also recognize that the ear can at times hear it wrong. And when it does, it needs to be reformed. And how, does it, how is it reformed? It's reformed on the basis of the authority of that speaking voice of God, namely the scriptures. So I think sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, the scriptures as authoritative, is part and parcel of another reformation instinct, namely that the church is always reforming and reformable. It's never a static entity. The church doesn't exist on autopilot. I'm using that language in my home and some of my parenting with a particular child. Um, when left on autopilot, son, uh, it, it, there's a lot of turbulence. Now, you, you got to, you've got to be critically reflective about what you're doing and thinking and saying, or else it's not going to go real well. 
I think this is similar to the church. The church is constantly bringing itself under critical scrutiny. Uh, Church members are constantly bringing itself under critical scrutiny to what? To the transforming and powerful word of God in uh, the Bible. So the church is always reformable, and sola scriptura are related and important reformation instincts that center around our discussion about what um, the Bible what the Bible is, okay? Uh, let me, let me uh, give you a, a, a quote here from Karl Barth, um, who defines the Scripture principle of the Reformation or the Reformed Scripture principle with the following uh, definition. The church recognizes the rule of its proclamation solely in the Word of God and finding the Word of God solely in Holy Scripture. Let me say that one more time. The church recognizes the rule or the authority or the warrant for its proclamation, for its ability to say anything authoritatively, to be able to say this is the word of the Lord. It can only do that on the basis of the word of God. Well, Mr. Bart, where does one find the word of God? Solely in the Holy Scriptures. In fact, for Bart, he says that the Scripture principle exists as the primary article by which the church stands, or by which the church falls. All right? So that was, believe it or not, introduction. Um, I, I have some, we'll see. We'll see where we get. Might not be past point one, and that'll be fine. Here's the, here's the first point. Uh, God's word, or God has spoken and is speaking. This is raising the question for us, what do we understand the Bible to be? Remember we said, it both is something and it does something. Well, what is it? It's God's Word. Um, I don't know if Mike Lucas is in here. I don't want to embarrass him. Is he here? I love the mistake you made this morning. I love it. Did you say this is the Word of the God? I love it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I love it. And I, and I thought, I don't want to embarrass him, but I thought that serves my purposes so well this morning. Thank you. So it was a stroke of providence that that happened. Um, this is the Word of the God, Right? Um, you know, language is a funny thing where there's an elasticity when we think about words as they come together and what they might actually do. Think about how many times we use the little word O-F, of, and we put two words on each side of it like word of God, and that little statement there can actually mean multiple things, right? Um, a word that is about God, a word whose source is God, right? I mean, it can be lots of things. Um, the one that I think we emphasize in our liturgy every week, in which we heard pronounced things so well this morning, is the fact that God's Word, the Bible, is God's possession. It's His. He oversees it. Um, the, the verse that I want you to think about, and it's one that many of you may know by heart, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. And it's profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, for training in righteousness. All Scripture is inspired. So when you think about what is the Bible and how do we understand the Bible, well, we understand the Bible primarily as God's Word. It's His. He has oversight over it. He is the speaking voice in it. So you think about, again, if I can play with language a little bit this morning, when we think about the Bible as God's Word, we think about it in two related and very important ways. Number one, God has spoken. 
And the second thing is, and God is speaking. God has spoken, and God is speaking. Now, we, this is a Bible church. I mean, I, we're not a, we're an Episcopal church, but th- this is a church that loves the Bible. This, it's, one of the, it's one of the drawing factors for me. Um, I've thought about this recently. I mentioned it to the Sunrise Centers. I mean, here I have the, the little gig that I have here at the church doing teaching and preaching. I'm so grateful for it. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I pay, I'm a Bible guy. That's how I pay the bills, right? I mean, I, I spend time this week with students wrestling with his field verbs in Hosea 2. I mean, that, that's how I pay the, pay the bills. Um, you, you, you could have someone in this position that has sort of specialities in canon law or, you know, or, or ecclesial traditions or something like that, and that would all be fine and good, but we're, we're kind of a Bible place. The Bible's central here. So you all think about the Bible a lot, but I want to tell you, and again, this is my, for my own sort of spiritual and faith journey, in those moments when the lightning flashes and we're made aware again of what the Bible actually is, it can be life-altering. In other words, this book right here is God speaking to us through the Spirit and making Jesus Christ present to us when we read it. And I'm going to talk more about that before the morning is over. But when we hear the Word of God read, when the Word of God is preached and proclaimed faithfully, that's God making His Word, which, by the way, we all know this, right, because we're Trinitarians, which is Himself present to us in a way that's mediated by the Spirit into our hearts and in our minds. All Scripture is inspired. The, the, the term there is, it's God-breathed. And I would like to say, not only God-breathed, in the sense that God breathed on Moses, or God breathed on David, or God breathed on Isaiah, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, or Paul, that's true, and I affirm that wholeheartedly, but it's also God-breathing. It's, it's dynamic, and it's alive, and it's powerful right now. It's a living organism, Hebrews chapter 4. And I'm not sure we think about the Bible that way, but the Bible is a living organism. And this is a challenge in modernity, right? Um, You know, we live on the far side of the the Enlightenment, and I'm going to speak in terms here that are very generalized, so forgive me, but you think about a figure as important as Immanuel Kant, whose legacy is with us to this day. Fascinating figure. And what did Immanuel Kant say? Immanuel Kant basically said, our engagement with the world around us is an engagement that works on the basis of the categories that our own mind brings to bear on that reality. That's how we make sense of the world. And we speak in that way. We speak in phenomenological terms about the phenomenon itself. There's a chair, here you are. I use the categories of my mind. But to get to the thing itself, that world where this, this, of, of God, that we have no capability within our human reach to get to that. And I just want to let you know, there's a really big part of me that wants to put my arm around Kant and say, thank you so much. That is true. That is true. Except for this part where Kant didn't want to go. Namely, and we can't penetrate through our phenomenological world into that noumenal world. But thank God that he's penetrated from that world into ours. 
in His Son, and in His Word. God speaks. We don't have to clamor to figure Him out on our own. God speaks to let us know who He is. That's God's Word, and it's inspired. Can I give you a quote here from uh, Herman Bovink? A great dog name if you're looking for one. Uh, Bovink said, Scripture was written by the Holy Spirit that it might serve Him in guiding the church, in the perfecting of the saints, in building up the body of Christ. And in it, God daily comes to His people. In it, He speaks to His people, not from afar, but from nearby. It is the living voice of God. Divine inspiration, accordingly, is a permanent attribute of Holy Scripture. It was not only God-breathed at the time it was written, it is God-breathing. And let me just say this about uh, the Bible. And you might, I hope you don't find this offensive. And this, this does make, I think, Christianity distinct from Islam in its view of the Quran, as I, thought, as I heard uh, Jason over the past few weeks. We don't make this claim because of the special quality of the literary character of the Bible itself. Um, there are pretty big-name Christian theologians from the history of the church that found it a massive hurdle um, to engage the Bible in its literary forms because they weren't all that good. Um, and I, can I just lay this out? I mean, uh, the Shakespearean, Elizabethan, English, Psalm 23, the Psalms, way, way better than Hebrew poetry. Way better. It was just beautiful, lyrical. You want to know what Hebrew poetry sounds like if you heard it read to you? Like you're getting shot with a machine gun. Ta-ta, ta-ta, ta-ta. You're all, that's it. And what do you have in, in the King James Bible? It's just so beautiful, moving. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. I mean, just, I mean, you could just sort of float away on that stuff. You're not floating away on the Hebrew. You're not. You're hitting uh, Craig Smalley's moguls, right, on the way down. And that's what's happening. Um, and this was a real challenge for a figure named Jerome one of the great leading exegetes in the 4th and 5th century. What did Jerome say? It was a challenge for me to leave the beauty of, of Cicero's Latin for the barbarity of the Hebrew language. But I did it in my leaving all to follow Jesus. In other words, our claim about the inspired character of the Bible as being God-breathed is not based per se on its literary quality, although I should say... There's beautiful stuff in the Bible, all right? Beautiful stuff. But we don't base it on that. It's an article of faith. It's a confession of faith because we believe what God has said to be true and predicated on this book, which is creaturely in its character from beginning to the end. This is a difference, I think, from Islam as well. In other words, God doesn't suspend the personality of its authors in the composition of the Bible. That's why I don't think, I mean, this is maybe too, too pedestrian, but I don't think Peter could have pulled off Paul's letters. just don't think it was in his intellectual horizon. I don't think so. But Paul did it. God used Paul's particular gifts. Isaiah, an incredible prophet. We know of prophets that are unnamed, right, who are doing prophetic work as well, but God used Isaiah. So God does not suspend the creaturely character of the Bible. In other words, we don't treat the Bible deistically or Gnostically. Let me, let me expre- express that. What would, what would deistically be? Well, that God sort of sets creation in its motion and lets humanity do its work, but because it's a human enterprise, God's not involved in the messiness of it. Or a Gnostic view of that would be that God cannot really use human individuals. That's, that's too creaturely. He has to suspend that and elevate it into another realm. 
God uses human people, human voices to compose his word, and he takes those words, he sanctifies those words, and he makes them his very own, then and now and again and again. It's God breathed and um, it's God breathing. I was sitting in a PhD seminar when I was over in St. Andrews, and one of, the, I think, America's better theologians happened to be there. I was very excited to hear him, named Robert Jensen. Jensen had showed up. We'd read an article of his on the Bible and the Trinity, and here we all in a small little room there in the dark of Scotland, and, and uh, someone kind of snarkily asked Robert Jensen, who's now the heyday of his theological career, um, all right, so who wrote the Bible? And uh, Robert Jensen said, well, if you'd asked me that question 30 years ago, I'd have gone to my shelf and I'd pulled off my best commentaries and I'd try to think through the da 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 He says, well, I'm just going to go ahead and say God. And that was it. End of the conversation. I'm like, whoa, that, was, that took the air out of the room. Um, we do believe in the creaturely character of the Bible that humans are involved in it. But we believe primarily in the divine voice of the Bible, the divine authorship of the Bible. That's what we confess primarily. And that shapes our understanding of its creaturely character. Let me say one other thing, because I, I have two more, but I'm, I want to take a few questions. Um, Reformation tradition, Reformation theology affirms that the scriptures are authoritative. And it uses technical language to get at that. It's the norming norm by which nothing else, and it, and it is not normed. I mean, that's, that's kind of a strange way of saying it. But the point is, the Bible is authoritative. It's the norming voice. It's the final authoritative arbiter for any issues that face the life of the church as it thinks about itself, both in its thought and life and prayer in its worship. It's canonical. It's authoritative. And another way we might say this is the Bible is sufficient. It's sufficient. Um, some of you have heard me use this from the Bible before, but I want to give you a biblical uh, illustration of this. John's Gospel, the ending of John's Gospel. And oh man, you want to talk about debates, right, in the secondary literature. Did John's Gospel end in chapter 20 and then someone came along and slapped chapter 21 in there because he got two endings? I mean, I, you can figure that out. Um, but the final verse in John's Gospel as we have it is this. And many other things that Jesus do, so much so that they could be written to the heavens and back, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I would say for the majority of my Christian existence, I read that verse as a superlative. Maybe you have too. In other words, Jesus did so many things, we could just keep talking about it all day long. We could keep writing ream upon ream upon ream. Of, I mean, the scrolls would just keep going. He did so many things. And while that's true, I don't believe that's what the gospel ending is doing. I actually think it's a term of negation. Yes, Jesus did do many other things, so much so that more could be written. In fact, some other things have been written. Welcome in Gospel of Thomas, uh, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Gospel of Judas, all these Gnostic Gospels out there. And by the way, just between us, if you've read one, you've read them all. They're just awful. Um, uh, have I told you before how the Gospel of Thomas ends? All women will be then turned into men, and then they'll be able to enter into the kingdom of God. That'd be a hot seller today, I'd imagine. It'd go real well. Um, you know, but, uh, so, but, that, but, but again, back to John. It's not a statement of a superlative. It's a negating statement. Yes, many other things are written, but these are written that ye might believe. That's a claim about the fourfold canon, a fourfold gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about their sufficiency. 
Do you want to know about Jesus of Nazareth, the historical figure and the risen Lord? Do you want to know about him? Then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are enough for you to understand who he is, and not only to understand, but so that you might what? Believe. Right. That's a claim about the Bible's sufficiency. It's sufficient. It's authoritative. It's canonical. Let me give you a couple other uh, quotes from church history. Augustine, in his little book on Christian teaching, which is a gem, it's a gem, and Karl Barth steals from him, I think, without quoting him. Shame on you, Barth. Right. But both of them say, in effect, this same phrase. The Bible, in its least assimilable and most difficult parts, has more important and better things to say than the best of our theological construction. I'll say that one more time. The Bible, in its least assimilable and most difficult parts, has more important and better things to say than the best of our theological constructions. And i got to tell you, there's at least three days of the week where I'm not sure I believe that. Now, you think about that. You mean better than Calvin's Institutes? You mean some of those weird narratives and judges? Better than the Institutes? Better than Augustine? Better than Bart? Church Dogmatics 4.1? The point that they're making is that the Bible itself is the only vehicle by which we even do Christian theology and thought. It's significant. It's singular. It's authoritative. And this is, I think, why at the heart of the Reformation there's this proper ordering of word and tradition. Word shapes our understanding of tradition primarily. And I would say I'm not sure that's our big challenge in the world we live in now. Right? I think the world we live in now, as we think about the inheritance of the Reformation, its understanding of sola scriptura, as we think through the cultural dynamics of our world, I think would be proper, the proper ordering of, the, of word and experience. Because I think you'll find a lot of talk today, especially among leaders in the Christian church of the mainline, welcome to our denomination, who will speak about experience in such a way that it's on a parallel track with the Bible itself. And I don't want to downplay experience. We can't escape our experiences. But the way in which our experiences are best to be understood is through the authoritative lens of the Bible itself. It gets to make the decision on how we judge and adjudicate our experiences. And that's a hard pill to swallow. I mean, especially on the far side of the literature of the 20th century. It's a very hard pill to swallow. That my own experience and my own understanding of the world is actually beholden to an authority outside of myself and my own experience of it. Um, I, I would say, I mean, for you and for me, that's really something worth wrestling with long and hard. Does the Bible shape my understanding of experience or vice versa? And there's a sense in which we can't suspend ourselves from that tension, but the proper ordering of it in our own minds as we come to the Bible and our experience is very, very important. Well, I have another point, namely to, I want to talk about the word and spirit that the Bible does not stand alone apart from the operative work of the Holy Spirit. I think that's very important, word and spirit. And the last thing I wanted to say, because I want to leave time for some questions, the last thing I wanted to say is, what's a practical outcome of this particular view of the Bible for you and your own Bible study? I mean, I have people who ask me all the time, you know, I want to be a better reader of the Bible. Well, what's our typical answer to that? An intellectual answer, right? Well, why don't you go enroll at Beeson Divinity School and take some classes? 
or why don't you enroll in the lay academy or join a Bible study. And all of that is very important and good. As I'm, don't hear me minimizing that. Again, that's how I pay the bills, so it's very good. <laughs> but it's not the way in which the tradition would lead in answering that question. The tradition would lead because of our spiritual understanding of what the Bible is. It's God's, it's His Word, it's a living organism, it's powerful, dynamic, it's in our lives now by the power of the Spirit. It's presenting Jesus to us so that we can believe and be transformed. We believe all of that. This is where the Reformation tradition says if all that's true, then the first and most important interpretive principle is prayer. I'm not sure that's how we would naturally lead, but it's prayer. Can I read this quote to you from Karl Barth? Only then, when we recognize that God is the author of His Word, do we realize that we cannot read and understand Holy Scripture without prayer. That is, without invoking the grace of God. And it is only on the presupposition of prayer that all human effort in this matter and penitence for human failure in this effort will become serious and effective. If I can paraphrase or maybe rephrase what I think Karl Barth is saying, if we want to be faithful and obedient readers of the Bible, then faithful and obedient readers of the Bible are readers that read the Bible in a posture, in a spirit of prayer. This is one of the beauties, I think, of the, of, of the, of the magisterial reformers, as I, as I understand them. All of them worked hard at what I might call the brass tacks of Bible study. And I've been buried in Calvin's commentary on Micah over the past couple of months. I mean, the brother is incredible in his ability to engage the Hebrew text on a very fine level. We're talking about the 17th. He didn't have, have right-click, computer search. He didn't have all the stuff I've got. And it's just incredible the insight that he has on a close reading of an original language. It's, it's quite an intellectual achievement. But for all of the intellectual achievement of that renaissance, humanistic, back-to-the-source mentality of reading the Bible, for all the achievement of that, no reformer thought that their work on that level could make the Bible happen. I could make this thing happen on the basis of the power of my own intellectual creativity. No, all of that is in service to the Word. And if it's going to happen, it's going to happen because God shows up. And we expect Him to do it again and again. All right. Okay. Um, one question, two questions, only easy questions. <laughs> Not easy. All right. Um, account for the Apocrypha. Um, well, this is, a, this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine right, with the Apocrypha. And it's, uh, we've talked about it for a while because even within the English Bible tradition, you know, at first the, the English Bible was translated, I mean, was published with the Apocrypha attached. I will say this, all right, this is where I kind of come in as someone who sees, uh, from a canonical standpoint, the priority of the Hebrew text. And this was a debate in the early church. St. Augustine, I mentioned his name already, and Jerome, I mentioned his name. They really debated Septuagint, Greek translation, which includes these apocryphal books, or is the Hebrew text, uh, the text of the synagogue, is that the authoritative text? Augustine argues for the inspiration of the Septuagint, and there's... Welcome to the, you know, the Roman Catholic sort of stream of understanding the, the scope of the biblical canon. I do side with Jerome on this. I do. I think for theological reasons, it's important for the church and the synagogue to share in a common canonical inheritance. I think that's important theologically. And then if you want some sort of brass tacks side of it, 
There's nowhere except for Jude, and that's a strange exception. But there's nowhere in the New Testament where books outside of the Hebrew canon, our Old Testament, um, that are ever, authorita- are, are ever um, cited as authoritative scripture, as it is written, or thus saith the Lord. None of that is ever spoken of with those deuterocanonical or apocryphal books. And I would say, I'm a little not as confident to say this in a broad sweeping way, but I, I'm, I'm 90% on this one. You rarely, if ever, find church fathers referring to the Apocrypha in that way as well. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. They don't tend to refer to those books as authoritative in the same way that you would find um, other books. And there was a distinction that was made in early sort of canonical debates between what was called anti-legumina and homo-legumina. What are the books that we all agree on? What are some of the more disputed ones? And these, and these were in that area of, of disputation. I don't think so. I think I mean, it's kind of one of those funny things that really the scope of the canon doesn't become a live hot issue really until the 17th, I mean the 16th century. It's a reformation debate. I mean, I, I, this is, might be a shock, but the first time that we actually have, and correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I think the first time we actually have a canonical list in an official ecclesial document is 39 articles. Beforehand, I mean, and that's, you know, there, there was a sense in which the Bible did its work despite the fact that there was debates regarding the fuzziness of which books are in or out on the edges. It's a, it's a fascinating thing, actually. Yeah. yeah. Do theologians, different theologians, get different ideas or variations from the different translations of the Bible? Certainly, and that's another area of, I think, a fascinating theological conversation, and again, a point of differentiation between the church and Islam. Um, I've got a Bible here today, and you can see it's got something stamped on the front of it, right? Holy Bible. This is the English Standard Version. I call it the Beeson Standard Version. Um, um, it's, it's a translation, and when we read it, when we heard it read this morning in publicly, in translated form, how did we respond? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In other words, we identify translations as the word of the Lord. Now, there's a lot of thought that needs to kind of go into this, how we describe it. And that's, for me, this, is, this gets back to the question about the Septuagint and the Hebrew text and all this. So this, it's a very important conversation. But, yes, I would say that people in the history of the church have gotten different ideas based off of what text that they're using. And this is, this is way off the tracks, but even in the New Testament. The New Testament can sometimes make a theological point over a Greek translation of the Hebrew text that's not really the sense that's there in the Hebrew text. What does one do with that? I think this is where one has to kind of have a robust pneumatology or doctrine of the Spirit as it relates to the fixity of language. So, yes, do theologians get different views on different translations? I think they do. Um, But I think that that can always be corrected. I think that's the the point about the, the hope of this particular scripture principle. Those can be corrected. One more. I don't know what time it is. Oh, if you need to go, go ahead. Oh, look at them. There they go. How many times a day do you you just go, I am that I am? Do I do that? Never. I get struck by lightning. <laughs> but uh, No, but I mean, you know, uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Oh. That the, it's, you can talk about it all day. Yeah, yeah. But still in the end. That's right. It, 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 I do believe in the again and again reality of the gospel. Yeah, that's right. Okay, blessings, y'all.